You're listening to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. Over the course of three nights in January, the Lifetime Channel aired a docuseries called Surviving R. Kelly. It was chilling, it was unforgettable, and it resonated really deeply with so many of us who tuned in. Now that series executive producer, Dream Hampton, is being recognized for her work with a spot on Time Magazine's prestigious list of the top 100 influential people. Hampton, a Detroit author, artist, activist, and producer, helped to illuminate numerous stories from women who have accused Kelly of abuse, of pedophilia, and predatory behavior. It also put renewed attention on Kelly himself, who in February posted $100,000 bail after being charged in Chicago with 10 counts of aggravated sexual abuse. He pleaded not guilty and has continued to deny any wrongdoing. Detroit police are also investigating him after a woman came forward last month claiming that he took advantage of her when she was just 13 years old. Dream Hampton joins us now to talk about her work and this incredible honor. Dream Hampton, welcome back to Detroit today. It's great to see you here in Detroit. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, let's start. um, Let's start with the work here, which uh, again continues, I think, to have a tremendous effect on not just the conversation around R. Kelly himself, but lots of other conversations about how we deal with sexual abuse and sexual predation, but also how we sort of culturally come to understand why these things are problematic and how widespread they are in many different communities uh, in the United States. Um, Talk about why you felt this was the right time to do this project, to tell this story the way you did. You know, and that, that has been the most satisfying thing about the reception of the docuseries has been how iterative the conversations have been. You were one of the first kind of interviews I did. The series was still on, so we weren't sure of the impact. <laughs> it was the first night, and we'd advance you a screening, and you'd watch, so thank you. And you know so as the nights unfolded it was like wow this is going to have way more impact than i could have ever imagined i didn't know that a 51 year old r&b singer who perhaps the whole generation had not heard um you know in any deep way would resonate like this and so there's been an enormous amount of like conversations that have happened and they've been important and they've been led by people who are better trained than i to Mm -hmm. talk about gender violence, domestic violence, sexual violence. And that has been, like I said, deeply satisfying to watch. Of course, there's been blowback, um, personal threats to me. Yeah. Um, which I, I think I anticipated that more than the success. Um, we did this show in a way to make it lawsuit-proof, you know, in terms of the research that we did, in terms of the vetting of the actual um, people who were accusing R. Kelly. And because because we went into this saying there's a 110 percent chance we'll get sued. And then because I'm from Detroit and Detroit and Chicago aren't like L.A. and New York, where you may get a publicist and power through it. I knew that there could be other kinds of repercussions, street repercussions, that there were people who'd been living off of this man for the past 30 years. Um, And so I've been dealing with some of that, too. Um, So it's 
it's fun to get a break from that drama <laughs> and get dressed up and go to like a time gala for being right. on this list or right. whatever. <laughs> One of the things that's really surprised me and, and you know, I follow you on social media and, and I see a lot of the things, a lot of the conversations that have cropped up since this, 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 this was shown. But I have to say, I've been surprised by the defenders who have come mm-hmm. out of the woodwork, not just of R. Kelly, but of the whole idea of this sort of uh, cross-generational issue that we have, that that there are a lot of, there are a lot of men who are ready to defend the idea of being sexually involved with women who are underage. Yeah, it devolved um, into that in terms of the kind of responses that I was getting at first. There were these kind of what I consider incredibly ridiculous arguments about his innocence. And I say that because I'm old enough to have remembered the tape that circulated in 2002. I didn't screen it back then. I screened it as I was producing the docuseries. But it's available to not watch. No one should watch it. It's incredibly abusive and it's clearly a child. Um so this and if you even if you hadn't watched the tape, there was all of the kind of cultural satirical stuff that, you know, was produced as a result of it. So Dave Chappelle skits, Boondock skits, even South Park skits, right? So this question of his innocence, um, even though he's found not guilty, is just, I don't, there's no cultural, that's not, you know, a real kind of argument to me. And so then it devolved after his Gail King interview, where, um, which was just a meltdown, And um, if anyone has ever been in a relationship with anyone who's abusive on any level, that was, they recognized all of the kind of hallmark, Mm -hmm. you know, (laughs) the things that happen when you're having that kind of exchange, the crying, the um, seeing themselves as the victim, the explosions of anger. You know, there were memes about how well Gail had kept her composure. She'll be at the gala tomorrow. She's on. <laughs> she's this, another one of the yeah, people on the list. Yeah, she's on right? the list. She's actually one of the covers. And so um, I say that it devolved because after the Gail King interview, what people started, once the whole question of innocence was off the table, then what you're describing, this question of like, well, what's so wrong? Mm-hmm. And then we have to look at, and this isn't a black community thing. This isn't, this is like, we have, when we talk about rape culture, when we talk about it being a global crisis, we have to look at the fact that there, and I don't have the stats like some people who work in this field do, but there are a handful of countries, I, don't, I think less than two dozen, that where it's illegal to have sex with a child in the world. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, there are states in the U.S. where we're on a really fine line, southern states. I mean, Roy Moore, you'll remember, argued that when he was um, up for Senate and, and that whole thing blew up about him cruising malls as a 30-something-year-old attorney, you'll remember that he made the argument that he would ask the, for the girl's mother's permission. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I think... And that, somehow that made it okay. Right. But that that speaks to, like, And I think when I was on here, I actually got really personal about it being in my own family, about, you know, my dad being 30 something and marrying a 19 year old, my stepmom being 19 when I was about eight. So this isn't that far away from for for us, for many in many of our families. So we're going to have to make a decision, actually. Like we made a decision to not drink and drive. (laughs) I know this is far more serious than that. Not that that wasn't serious, but we have made real cultural decisions around 
all kinds of public behavior. And of course, this doesn't just happen in the public. The problem with um, sexual violence is it also often happens in deeply private You have spaces. no idea who, yeah. who's doing it or who's a victim of it. Yeah. This seems... You sort of referenced the the conversation about drunk driving, which did take a long time for people to understand. Okay, that's just not okay. Yeah, there's no circumstances under which it's safe. We've got to change the laws in a way so that it discourages people from doing it. And and I think we've gotten there uh, on that issue. I don't issue. think it's just the laws. I think it's a cultural. It's a cultural thing. Yeah, right. it has to be. Mm-hmm. So what's why is this so much harder? This seems like an uh, an uh, an exponentially harder thing yeah. to get people to talk about, A, but also then to, to sort of breach that cultural protective bubble that exists around it, as you point out, not in one community or another, but kind of universally. You know, I used to be a student member of MAD, Mothers Against Drunk Driving, <laughs> and I was too young to probably have an analysis of, analysis of it then, but I know that the arguments about, there were a lot of ads that were about, you may harm someone else, right? But then when people started seeing the kind of self-harm that could happen from, you know, driving impaired, um, then I think, and I don't have any studies on this, but people are self-interested, hmm. You know, and then patriarchy is deeply. I mean, we we have to. I, I I have these conversations, and I go where no one wants to go, which is like, you know, our monotheistic, our monotheistic Abrahamic patriarchal religions. <laughs> like we are going to have to, you know, get down. I mean, it, for instance, the Nation of Islam started in Detroit. Says the Elijah Muhammad's instructions for marrying is someone that is half your age plus seven years. That's literally the math on that. Mm-hmm. I could take that in any space, right? I could go to, you know, pastors. We have Hollywood like jokes about it, first wives clubs. So this is like deep this is like what men think is their right to do. You know? And that's I mean, that's a really different kind of cultural imperative to yeah. confront. No, it is. And the the reaction to the work here, I think really it really showed that in a way that it surprised me. I mean, I, I yeah. am as aware of as, as as anyone else of these things kind of lurking in the background. It This just called it all out to the front. And people were not afraid to say, here's why I think this is not that big a deal or here's why I think this is okay. Well, then, then we're talking about this particular Trumpian moment that we're in where people vociferously defend really abhorrent behavior, which may, you know, some people argue be more productive because there's not the denial mm-hmm. um, and the, you know, performance of a respectability, you know. Mm. Um, I just, at the end, want children um, of all genders to be safe. You know, I don't, I'm not like... Um, a prude you know I think that as I know that as humans like one of the ways we survive as a species is through sex and that curiosity around about sex may happen for some um, people quite young you know early teenagers are exploring they should be exploring with one another Uh, my guest is Dream Hampton she was the executive producer of Surviving R. Kelly and she has just been named Time Magazine's list of the top 100 influential people. We're talking about her work and that honor. Uh, 
Talk about the survivors themselves of R. Kelly's abuse. You you got many of them to talk uh, for the docuseries. Do you feel like the docuseries has helped them? Uh, are things going to get better in their lives because of this work? The only way that things are going to get better for most of them is to be in deep therapy for years. And I'm really sad to say that not a single one of them had therapy before Mm. the project. Really? Wow. Yeah. And so we had that net, like those networks and that safety net for, you know, we had a girl in the series who was rescued um, on air, on camera. So it was absolutely our duty to provide um, someone for that survivor. And they weren't ready, actually, you have to also be ready for therapy. I know that I'm back in therapy, so I highly recommend it, you know, after having received all these stories. Um, something I hadn't been in years since my late 20s. And so, you know, I hope that that is destigmatized in all communities, um, but particularly, you know, black and, and working poor communities. Mm. Mm-hmm. What about the consequences for for R. Kelly? As I said in the open, yeah. he's got uh, these charges in in Chicago, and maybe something developing here in Detroit. I would imagine. No, oh, that's not it. Atlanta. Um, yeah. There's a multi-state federal case. So yeah, and um, I mean, you know, I wrote a piece in Time Magazine, um, the same magazine that put me on this list of influential folks, and about um, not being a carceral feminist, meaning that I don't, punishment isn't my default. Like, you know, in, in terms of someone who's looking at restorative justice as an alternate alternative, as a, as a better way of moving forward in the 21st century where we're trying to dismantle this criminal industrial complex, I have to be thinking of new ways. I don't fully identify as an abolitionist yet because of gender and sexual violence, Mm -hmm. because I haven't seen community responses that are comprehensive. I've seen people like take, you know, the killer of some mother's son to that mother's home. Van Jones is like doing a project like that right now that's built on years of that kind of work, right? And seeing like incredible breakthroughs and restorative justice around that kind of violence. When it comes to gender and sexual violence, I've not seen that happen in our communities. And and that's a harder thing to, to try to do even. And I mean, murder being sort of at the top of uh, our sort of, uh, our view of criminal wrongdoing, right? It's, mm-hmm. it's punished more harshly than than anything else this this seems to occupy not just a, a lower space but a different space even in the in the law and so um you know i was talking to some i just came back from the ted conference and i was talking um to there were a couple of us sitting around the table and you know we were talking about the fact that all women know other women who've experienced sexual violence and no men know any other men who've committed sexual violence. (laughs) Right, right. So there's like a 101, you know, I'm on this list with Brett Kavanaugh, this time's most influential people, (laughs) right? This isn't like a all good list to me. (laughs) Trump is on this list. It's Uh, influential. It It doesn't say like heroic. (laughs) It just says influential. Right. And so, you know, this question of consent, I mean, I think about what kind of moment it would have been had Brett Kavanaugh said, 
you know what? I drank so much in high school. A, I would have identified with him in Kaz in the late 80s. I didn't even drink in college because we drank so much in high school. <laughs> I would, If he would have said, I drank, and he was in, in high school just a few years before me, I drank so much in high school. I don't remember this particular incident, but this doesn't sound like something that I would not have done. There's a real possibility I did that. When I hear this woman's testimony, it makes me think that I have caused her harm that I can't remember, which keeps me up at night. I am not that man. I've spent the past 40 years becoming a different man. And I stand before you like that kind of contrition, even mm -hmm. if it was just a performance, would have been so healing for this country yeah. in this moment. Think of how powerfully that would have influenced not just those proceedings in Washington, but, exactly. but all kinds of conversations that, that of course, happened because of those proceedings and happened in a, a really awful way, I thought, because of his performance. Yeah, and not some perfunctory Louis C.K., I'm going to get the, you know, try to get this headline out of the news and, and sneak back on stage a couple months later. I mean, something that really involved that kind of moment. And if R. Kelly, now, now let's just imagine if R. Kelly had done that with Gail King, if instead of beating his chest and saying, you know how like you're in an interview and they're like, what's the worst quality you have? And his answer to that was my giving heart. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that was literally his answer. It was like watching Trapped in the Closet, mm -hmm. the kind of performance he put on for Gail King. Imagine if he had said, you know what? I was sexually abused from 7 to 14. I don't think that I knew how formative those years were. I don't have an idea what sexual, healthy sexual life is, what it can be. And I think that I may have harmed women in ways that I can't fathom. And I want to leave this interview right now and go get some help. And I'm going to disappear. I'm not going to be doing club, ex you know, dates for $500 or whatever craziness I'm doing right now. I'm going to really get the help that I need. But that, this is a society that does yeah. not reward that kind of behavior. And I think that has a lot to do with those kinds of decisions by powerful people, powerful men in particular, that if you admit any kind of wrongdoing, if you admit any kind of personal weakness or failure, you're done. Uh, I don't know. I've seen the opposite happen again and again. And I, and I, and I have to believe that that can't help and happen. I think that, I mean, we have so many examples. Not all of them have been, you know, you know, colossal like successes. But I think of obviously, you know, the you know, the penultimate, which is um, Tutu in South Africa, sure. you know, after apartheid, trying to have these truth and reconciliation. And I've seen that try to be repeated in places like the Congo, where hundreds of th thousands of women were raped. I've seen Rwanda, like at an art installation. I saw at, at Cranbrook, in fact, I saw this video with these someone who had harmed and someone who had been harmed, trying to face one another. And, I mean, first of all, that's an enormous amount of work, but there's a real healing that's necessary. I mean, yeah. the numbers are staggering. And, and here I can talk about us. I'm a black person. I care about black people. That's the community I live in, work in. And our numbers are staggering, you know, when it comes to young girls reporting sexual assault. And we underreport. Yes, we do. Yeah. Okay, we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, I'll continue my conversation with Dream Hampton, one of Time Magazine's list of the top 100 influential people. Stay with us on Detroit Today. 
You're listening to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. My guest is Dream Hampton. She was the executive producer of Surviving R. Kelly, a docuseries that featured lots of women, young women, who have been the victims of R. Kelly's sexual abuse and pedophilia. She's also been named to Time Magazine's list of the top 100 influential people. Uh, I want to talk about this honor, of course. Uh, Tell me how you found out about it and what your reaction was. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I've I've been getting a couple of these. This is the biggest by by far. (laughs) um, And it's not very exciting. My assistant was like, Time Magazine wants to, has you on a list, and I know the list. So I was like, wow. Um, I was surprised to learn that Toronto Burke had written the piece about me, and that mm-hmm. was such an honor. And I, I get shy around this stuff, you know? <laughs> I don't like to take pictures. I don't like to, like, be forward-facing. I never have, you know? I did it for a minute, like, in the late 90s, back when VH1 and all those places used to do music (laughs) documentaries, and I was a music writer. But, yeah, I'm not um, interested in visibility, and so it makes me shy, but it's an honor. Yeah. It is an honor. It's a huge honor. Yeah. I uh, think of all the, you know, hundreds of millions of people who live in this country, and you narrow... That that to a hundred and say these are the most influential. There's no question. That's a that's a very very prestigious honor. I, one thing that was interesting about it is that you're included in the artist category. Yeah, and what you created seems to transcend our common perception of art in many ways. Though I I, I would imagine that they probably had a hard time figuring out which category yeah. you might have fit into. Well, I self-ID as an artist, so I was actually happy to be affirmed in that way. And I believe that art can do this. I don't think that it has to do this. I don't think that it's incumbent upon art to tackle issues. I, I believe in, you know, the art critic Clement Greenberg um, coined the phrase art for art's sake. So I believe in purely aesthetic, like, exercises. Um I have a hard, I'm hardwired around justice. And so often, you know, my art as a director, as a writer, um, in this case, executive producer, which is like a director, although there were many people, that was the other thing about winning this honor is that when you make a film, usually there are a lot of people involved. Involved in this. Yeah, especially with television, network television. I mean, Brie Bryant at Lifetime should be on this list. Tamara Simmons, um, another executive producer who basically held all of the survivors' hands through this process, should be on this list. The women should be on this list themselves Mm. because Mm. it was their stories and them facing the camera with the dignity that they already possessed. I didn't give them that. I didn't give them a voice but I just turned my camera on and received their stories, they should be on the list. So, I mean, if there's this kind of truth, and again, you don't know what's going to hit. I mean, the last thing that I did, Treasure, was about, um, you know, a a trans girl here in Detroit who Mm -hmm. was murdered after the police set her up and then told that they'd set her up. And... um, you know, I mean, they they recruited her as a confidential informant and then told the people she was so-called snitching on. Um, and that caused her murder. And maybe 10,000 people have seen that if you count festivals and it's downloadable. 
Um, and so to have 38 million eyes on one thing <laughs> and then, you know, 10,000 on your last thing, sure. you just, and I've been in this long enough to not get too excited about <laughs> whatever people consider success to be. But yeah, it is a, it's deeply rewarding, not rewarding. It's not the right word, but to see these, cause the conversations are hard. So the conversations in themselves aren't the reward, but it means something that people watched this and then talked about it. And you, like you, you were one of the first people to kind of start tracking it in the public space and the public space being social media. I mean, it's a, it's an incredible, again, ripple effect that it's had. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, people are still talking about yeah. this issue based on what they saw in January on, on Lifetime. So, so what's next? <laughs> the know, worst I, question for any artist, well, right? No, I always have 9,000 things so I could spit them out, but I never do. I mean, I didn't talk about this project until maybe three or four weeks before it was coming out. Um, and it's not a jinx thing. I just have my head so deep down when I'm trying to concentrate on a thing. Mm -hmm. We do have to do a wrap-up for this, um, which I wasn't necessarily looking forward to. I thought... We should just drop the mic, but because there have been so impact, so many impacts, um, not just in the public space, but also in his case, and 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 that's going to affect obviously some of our survivors who are centered in this piece. So Lifetime is going to do a wrap up. I'm not going to be. I was showrunner on, um, which is like all hands on. I'm not going to do that with this because it's not a topic that I want to go do another deep dive into. Mm. But there will be a wrap up to this. Um, and, you know, my first film out of film school was a narrative. It was a scripted short film. And so I'm writing. I'm writing something <laughs> that I um, hope gets produced, you know, which is a shot in the dark. It costs so much money to make films. I was going to say, it's not a cheap medium to work in, right? It's not. And Julie <laughs> Dash, you know, who taught here at Wayne State for a semester, told me I was a student at NYU film school back in the early 90s and her great epic um, Daughters of the Dust was screening. I was at a screening and she was pacing in the hallway when I went to the bathroom and I was like, you know, Julie, I'm getting sidetracked. I'm doing this journalism thing somehow. I don't know how it <laughs> happened. It's my like school job and it's <laughs> turning into a thing. And she's like, be happy that you have this second thing because it takes so long to set up one film to the other. I mean, that's why Spike Lee and, you know, speaking of Predators, you know, Woody Allen, that kind of prolific, like setting up film after film, that's rare. Yeah. You know, Kubrick made a handful of films, maybe a dozen. Um, Spielberg, who we think of as prolific, has made a third of the number of films that, say, Spike or mm -hmm. or Woody Allen have made. So, you know, it it's difficult. It's not like I'm a writer and I'm going to sit down and finally write. <laughs> or I'm a painter and I need a canvas and maybe some paint um, and some time. That's really the most expensive thing. Um, with film... Every time you turn on a camera, it costs thousands of dollars. So Yeah. Okay. Well, we will look forward to whatever <laughs> you land on Thank next. Uh, Dream oh, Hampton. I'm going to do a podcast. Oh, you are? About disappearing black cities. Oh, wow. And I'm going to start with my own. I was going to say, you can do that here. That's exactly <laughs> what I'm doing. It, but... You don't have to travel for that. <laughs> yes, I am going to start. Um, so that, look forward to that. I think if you want to be sad and depressed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's sad, but it's also, I mean, I think there are a lot of us here right now who are looking for ways to try to tell the story about how the city is changing from yeah. the way it was when 
we were kids mm-hmm. or, or, or young adults. And I mean, and that's a really interesting way into that. So. Yeah, I heard you talking on the radio about your sister and, um, you know, who's a doctor and mm-hmm. who you couldn't pay her to come back to you the city. You could not get her to come back. Because she lived through the 90s. Mm-hmm. And I, I, like you, went away and have come back. And I know, as Octavia Butler says, that the only constant is change Mm -hmm. and that a place like Hamtramck right now it's so impossible to talk about gentrification in easy ways but that used to be a Polish neighborhood and now it's Yemeni so there's something else yeah so everything is something else Harlem used to be Jewish you know before that it was Dutch um so there are cycles to things but so I'm not going to be talking about gentrification in some straightforward way because I lived through a straightforward gentrification story, which was Brooklyn, uh, right in the nineties. That was a flip. A lot different. That was a flip, here, yeah. yeah, and a push out, and and we have something different that happened here. And you talked about it earlier when you were talking about environmental challenges, which is divestment, systemic divestment, and so I want to talk about how important something like a black city is and was, particularly mm-hmm. at a time, to grow black economic and political power and what it means when we lose it. Yeah, yeah. No, that'll be fantastic. Thank you. All right. <laughs> Hampton, okay. executive producer of Surviving R. Kelly and a member of Time Magazine's list of the top 100 influential people. It's always great to catch up with you here. Thank you. Today. All right. That's going to do it for us today. I'll be back tomorrow. I hope you will, too. This is 1019 WDET, Detroit's public radio station, the community service of Wayne State University. I'll talk with you again tomorrow.